Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. as good as long as it's not like crushing the audio and ruining it yes then i think a bit of a a bit of vibe is good it's quite nice isn't it because then people can picture where you actually are do you want to set the scene for people (laughs) listening in yeah we're on a balcony above an art gallery with a quite delightful view yeah it's a really lovely view it's a view of lots of trees at the moment but also camberwell and some sort of victorian brick outhouse type things yeah. and activity and staff yeah. coffees yeah, the South going on just to our right staff are uh, yeah are, are busy about their work but we've, this is sort of quite a privileged glimpse because we don't like I come here all the time and I don't usually get to see these bits this is like the behind the scenes of the South I London I want to give you the VIP experience Alice yeah. on oh, home turf it. it's nice I feel as like well. on holiday so check this out. The opening scene in Sightseers, the opening shot, anyway, is a map, right, of the Midlands, and you're mapping out your camping route. <laughs> and in the top right is the villages Knoll and Dorridge. Oh, that's right. where I'm from. Is it? Yeah, that's where I grew up, went to school. My oh, mum right. still lives there. Oh, so that's you know like I've heard my hood. Knoll, but I don't know Dorridge. No, Dorridge but is I... sort of the more modern, I guess, spin-off right, of okay. Knoll. Okay, I do. Yeah, it's no, only about a mile that, down I the road. Sort of see it in my mind's eye. Oh. Yeah, because I think the word Dorridge probably caught my eye. Yeah, we were, <laughs> like, I always that say part, that. People are like, you live in Dorridge? I'm like, yeah, it's like porridge, but with a D. Yeah. There you go. No, it's a good name, isn't it? Sort of 
Dickensian yeah. sounding. <laughs> well, they built, the only thing they had there to begin with was the train station. And it's a very rich family that were the original landowners. And part of their are deal they the was that they are the Dorridge, oh, I guess. Right. Excuse me. <clears throat> and they, I guess, were like, we'll build this village here, but it has to have, and it has a direct train to London. Wow. So whenever I go between the two, it's like an hour and a half door to door from oh, literally wow. my village to London Marlebone. So it's, oh, that's really good. It's perfect. You've got to keep that quiet because yeah. the property prices. Oh, no. Well, know. I've just blown it up. <laughs> it Everyone should move to Dorridge. <laughs> I love place stuff. I get really into that with them. Um, when I'm writing a script or something, sometimes it really helps when you work out where everyone's from and when you work out like the history even of that place because I just think it informs who the people are totally. And that was the thing with like, you know, Chris and Tina is like we were very adamant that they were Midlanders. Midlanders. Was there a region specific that you had in mind for those two? Um, well, it's funny because Steve's family are from Redditch, oh, okay. and which is where we sort of set it, and then my family are more kind of Walsall, kind of blocks, which that kind of Aldridge kind okay. of area, yeah, yeah. more black country, actually. Um, but we sort of compromised and went with Steve, where Steve was from. But you know, I think we just uh, we felt like we knew those people, not murderers, obviously yeah, yeah, per yeah. se, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I just think it was that thing of, of knowing where, where they were from and what they did on a day-to-day basis and what surrounds them, you know. Were they sort of characters that you created prior? Yeah, so me and Steve, we used to do this thing called Ealing Live, which was like um, a producer set this up called Rob Moore who, who wanted to do a Saturday Night Live but with British performers, which is a brilliant idea. And, and would um, it be filmed or in front of live audiences? It was in front of the a theater? live audience, yeah. Um, they tried to, you know, do a couple of TV pilots around it, but every week we would go to Ealing Studios, which is, you know, a real pain if you're a South East Londoner. But you would go all the way to Ealing, and he would just, the producer would supply us with space to rehearse and a director, and that would be it. No money, but just like the opportunity to come up with sketches and perform them. And we had to do new stuff every week. And, uh, and we've got these group of comedians and we would just come together and, you know, me and Steve, I think we were just chatting about being from the Midlands and we both yeah, sort of just... Yeah, mutual connection. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we knew each other anyway, right. just from Edinburgh Film, uh, Edinburgh Comedy Festival and stuff. Um, but we started talking about these characters and, like, the idea of, like, sort of going, what were our parents like, what were our relatives like, and then going, well, imagine if they were murderers. And, um, <laughs> so that idea that, was always there. Yeah, yeah, and so then we did that as a on-stage kind of sketch and we only did it a couple of times and both times there was like tv producers in the audience who sort of came up to us and said what are you doing with that that's really cool what is it that you could go with that and it's like i think me and steve both of us were really this is why neither of us are stand-ups and probably if we were possibly we'd have much bigger houses by now um but you know we're really into character both of us i think and real subtlety and real nuances so Actually, when you put something like that on stage, I think people saw that it was more of a TV film, you know, more something that you would want to put a camera on than maybe you want something to spend you do time on stage. With these characters and yeah, see and there's how subtlety the to them, and there's a narrative. Evolves. I think yeah. they just felt like there was a narrative to it. And um, so we started working with Boak, actually, who do the Inbetweeners most famously, okay. along with lots of other things. And they um, helped us develop it as a kind of short film. Originally, it was supposed to be like a TV taster. And, um, you know, you usually have two choices with TV tasters. is You either pretend that you've made a whole series and you're taking the best bits, 
or you make a short nar- short form narrative thing. And I remember feeling like I really want to make the short form narrative because if you're going to film, you might as well watch something that is watchable in in of itself as a as a story, like something a short film. Yeah, and something that you you've you know you've gone out and done the work. Like you might as well own something afterwards. Yeah. Like everyone's worked really hard. You might as well have a piece that stands alone. You know. So we did that and um, sent it to loads of TV channels and then everyone said it was too dark and you couldn't make a comedy about murdering people. How wrong they were. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> televisually they're probably yeah. right because I don't know quite, apart from American channels, who's really going there with that kind of thing. And where it would sit and at what time. And yeah, exactly. It's very, it's, it's really tricky, actually, who would put it on. Maybe Channel 4 would have once upon a time, but maybe not now. Um so it was really difficult, and then uh, I sort of begged Boak if we could put it on YouTube because everyone seemed to have said no to it, and we put it on YouTube and sent it out to loads of people. And Edgar Wright was one of the people that I sent it to, and he got back to me and said, "I think you should make this as a movie. I'll He's exec- an executive producer, producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it to Big Talk, which is the company that does all of his films." And um, and they took it on as a comedy idea, and that was how it all started. And I think me and Steve just couldn't believe our luck. It was like winning X Factor or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how long had you been in the the game at this point, sort I'd, of as a jobbing actor? And probably only about five years, actually. I mean, I'd done Garth Marenghi, but that had been sort of like a really flying start that kind of then stuttered by the series getting cancelled. Is that what happened with that show? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's very hard to work out when why something doesn't get a second series, but yeah. it was quite expensive, I think, as a show. The production values, yeah. Because yeah, it's the, so well studied, isn't it? It's shot on film as well, wow. which, I mean, who does that these days, really? I know it's probably the last Even filmmakers don't, for the large part, right? <laughs> Let alone... You know, yeah, television it's actually just like a comedy. But yeah. I mean, it makes it look extraordinary, I think. So That's become you know. a real special cult. Cult in a known way as opposed to the unknown. I think it's one of those shows that's so celebrated and cherished. Yeah. Because it's so unique. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, at the time it felt really special as well. So I think that's even more of a shock than when you don't get a second series. And actually, I, for me, at that stage in my career everything that had happened to me had been so strange like I didn't expect to have any success or any money as an actor I didn't expect to be making a living out of it you know everything that was good that had happened had been so strange that when something bad happened that felt more normal so I didn't actually even go oh god I haven't got a second we haven't got a second series I just was like okay yeah, standard. that's fine but when I look back on it I sort of go actually that was a pretty bad bit of luck you yeah. know because that could have like really propelled all of us if, if it had been recognised at the time for how it's recognised now, I think what that would have been... What year was it originally filmed and then...? Um, so it was about 12 years ago. Oh, OK, uh, wow. Yeah, as long as that. Because um, <laughs> we did a 10-year sort of, you know, anniversary thing of it a couple of years ago. Um, so that would be 2005, 2004, something like that. Um, yeah, so it was ages ago. Um, but, yeah, I think... I think it's taken all of it. We've all gone on very different paths since that, and it's taken me certainly a while to kind of really go, oh, this is what I should be doing, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm, you know, I, I think. What's Matt? Is it Holness? Matt Holness. What's he up to? He's just finished shooting a feature film. Actually. Okay, cool. His, his directorial debut. Well, as a feature, he's done. He's done a short. 
a couple of shorts, I think, before that. But um, I'm really excited. It's, it's like quite a serious kind of horror, I think. And it looks really dark and interesting. Is he like you and like Richard? I don't know about Matt Berry, but definitely you two. You and Richard are obviously total cinema geeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is Matt, he one of those Matt as well? definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, his horror knowledge in particular is encyclopedic, but I also think he's sort of... I mean, you'd have to ask him, but he's, like, really knowledgeable about 70s, 60s, that kind of cinema as well, like... Is that your era in terms of the films that have perhaps inspired you or left a mark? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I Because Prevenge definitely, for me, has a... <laughs> it's very 70s, yeah. yeah. That was conscious. I mean, 70s for me is, like, when I think about my favourite performers and my favourite films, yeah, probably 70s, but then I'm not an expert. I haven't seen every 70s film ever made. I would never pretend <laughs> to be, like, this kind of connoisseur. I just I'm kind of a bit more instinctive than that. I just kind of go I vaguely I think I think 70s for me was like a perfect mixture of like technically people were really uh, equipment wise people were reaching new sort of boundary you know cr- cr- crashing through boundaries there. Yeah. But particularly with cinema cinematography, right? Yeah. And th- but then weirdly that played into performances becoming more rela- relaxed and more realistic and more naturalistic. So it was like this perfect merging of these sort of two worlds where it's like, I think people, some- sometimes I watch 70s things and I go, this is so modern, we've forgotten how to act in a way. Like why, yeah. why people can't do these sorts of performances anymore? Or like, what? like Jack Nicholson, I mean, yeah. Five Easy Pieces, have you seen that film? I haven't actually. So good. Really? So good, it's just before um, Cuckoo's Nest, I think. Right. And he's just amazing in that. And his performance in Easy Rider, like yeah. he steals that whole film from yeah. it. Yeah. It's just also it comes out when you see like child performances in some of these films, like Kramer versus Kramer. And the children yeah. are absolutely naturalistic. And you, you go, that's because it's seamless. The way that, you know, it was directed and the way it was shot, there was no, you know, they were, they were keeping a sort of continuity of, of naturalism and sort of, Relaxness to sort of get this kind of real feeling, and that's what I'm sort of interested in in doing really, and I really enjoy it. I, I think coming from it as an actor, you go that is the most fun you can have is when people are encouraging you to act in that way, and technic te- technicality is important, but it's not as important as the performance. And um, well, that's ultimately what you're trying to capture, right? Yeah. Is the actors, all the rest, is there to bring that to life. Yeah, well, if the performance is not there, then you might as well go home, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You just kind of think, what are we here for? It's like when people get annoyed with actors or whatever, or performers, you just sort of go, look, if the performer gets stressed out, we might as well all go home. Like, unless that's what you're trying to get. You're trying to get, like, a really stressed out performance, like I read Shelley that on Duvall the, uh, what was it, the 12 Monkeys set, Terry Gilliam would confiscate Brad Pitt's cigarettes and that's why he had that real <laughs> jittery. like jittery anxious vibe going on because oh, really? he was just craving nicotine the whole time yeah well, one day I look forward to torturing <laughs> yeah. some actors in that way no I don't know I mean probably the stuff that I have put the actors through in Prevenge that is excruciating in a different way <laughs> in terms of like awkwardness or embarrassment or whatever but the cast for that film is unbelievable mm. I mean you've got 
I don't know the guy's real name, but Angelos Epithemia yeah. is your first victim. Yeah, da- Dan Renton Skinner. And that was so good seeing him because I've only ever known him as Angelos. I actually interviewed yeah. him years ago over the phone and he sort of picked up and you could see he was just answering as he normally would. And I just went straight in and was like, Angelos! Because I wanted to create <laughs> the interview just with the character yeah. and he just ran with it and it's fantastic. Oh, he's brilliant. Again, he's a really he's great like, actor as well. Well, he must be, obviously, actor. because that's such a fully realised character, I mean, isn't he's it? an old friend, again, like from Edinburgh Fringe Festival and like I remember seeing him as part of a sketch group and really get you know when a comedian's got acting chops because they just push things that little bit further and again it's like what I was saying about me and Steve it's like the detail and the kind of you get the sense that they've gone into another world they've gone into another mind space and I always felt that about Dan that he was he'd got that extra edge thing but also I sort of wrote the character with him in mind. Did because, you? Yeah, I just... He's got such confidence as well. Like, as you say, like, he just went with the character. And I kind of... What I really needed with Prevenge was people to come in with absolute confidence that they were going to nail those characters home, even though they'd had no time to prepare. There was no rehearsal time. We were going to have to shoot in a day, so there wasn't... You did the huge, whole film in 11 days, right? Yeah, the whole thing was done in 11 days. That's incredible. So each actor was going to get a day. Yeah. So there's no time for, like, going... Oh, can you play it in a different way? I don't like what you're doing, or which I would never do anyway, because that's like murdering the <laughs> actor's confidence. <laughs> but um, you, you know, knew you needed them to be ready, match yeah, fit, as or, it were, and on the day. also ready to to play with me as well and my expectations of it to kind of come in and go. I I am the character. You didn't create it. I I am now we. I'm creating the character and it surprised me because I was acting with them as well. So, Are you a big fan of improvisation? Uh, improvisation. <laughs> There's a new word. It's inspirational improvisation. It. <laughs> Are you a fan of that and with working with the moment as opposed to the set words in the script? I think... I think it's often misunderstood improvisation. People think that you just go off on some tangent and completely recreate what's on the script. But actually, what, you, what I generally do is I get the script... And then once you get really comfortable with it, you can embroider it and and add onto it. And often it's stuff that comes instinctively once you've performed it a few times. You're like, oh, I wanted to say yeah then. And, and, and you know, like you, you never take it to a place where suddenly the plot doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It has to follow what the what the beat of the scene is. Um, but usually it's sort of you're enhancing it or whatever, or you're letting the actor put it into their terms and their rhythms so they're really comfortable with it and they own it. And then sometimes, and this is what Armando Iannucci does, is like you can then go back to the script and the fact that you've loosened it up and you've given the actors permission to own it means that when you go back to the script, they perform it in a much more convincing, naturalistic way because they're like, oh, yeah, this is what this means. It's, you know, it's about getting this from this person or whatever. Um, So it's like a, a really useful technique and I think it's really... You know, it's really good to not be too precious. I mean, I'm, I don't see myself as a conventional screenwriter. I don't think I'm the best screenwriter in the world, which doesn't mean that I don't want people to respect the script or whatever, but it's more that I'm like, I haven't written Shakespeare here, so there's no line that is really, really precious to me. To yeah, it's like... What about the, he made me, he said he wanted to poo in my hands and then smear it as brown lipstick. That, Surely that's a line that, that had to stay in. That was an improvisation, yeah. That's my favourite line we in that, that whole that film. did that in rehearsal. <laughs> So funny. It's disgusting. It's, isn't it? Yeah, it's awful. It was um, that was actually from rehearsal. Like because we hadn't worked with Ben that much, we'd worked with him on like a TV pilot. He was like, "I just want to do rehearsal just with you guys and the and the DOP, which is Laurie Rose." And um, we just did one day, you know, just to sort of find out, find our feet with it. And after we did that scene in particular, he just went, "Do you know what? I don't want to film anymore because we're 
we're, we're getting gold dust here and we're losing it and, and we should just step away and like so that was like one of those really nice things like working with Ben that um, that we kind of knew it was going to work at that, you know you get to a point where you're like this is quite good isn't it it's yeah. going to be quite good how did and, Ben and you become involved in sitting down on that um, he, it's quite a long story really um, initially the short film was directed by Paul King who Mighty Boosh and, and, right? and Paddington. He, w- he did the stage show of Garth Marenghi and he right. was heavily involved with the TV show as well. Um, but he he did the short film, which is quite a funny comparison between like Sightseers and Paddington. It wouldn't come naturally to you, those, those no. comparing those two films. Is that um, available on YouTube to watch? No. No. We kind of... Is it like a DVD extra or anything like that? I think, you know, one day in like 10 years' time it might come out. I mean, it's very similar to the future, actually. Um, But, yeah, it's one of those things where you want people to see the film and not... It's like if you found, like, the rehearsal tapes for Withnail and I or something. This is... Because I'm comparing Sightseers to Withnail and I. But say if there's a film that you love, a comedy film... Do you really want to see like Strips all the behind the, magic, the right? scenes? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's almost like the characters living again or something, but they've been re- resurrected or something. But in a way that I Isn't don't know how satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good short film. I don't think there's any way we would have got, you know, as far as we did with getting it commissioned and stuff if it hadn't been really good. But I don't know really what it adds. It would add as watching it as an experience. But we, but basically, we were working with Paul King and developing. Um, you know, developing the film for him to direct, really. And then he got Paddington, which at the time was like a three-picture deal. I think it probably still is. Uh, some sort of three-picture deal, and he just was like, I've got to go and commit myself to that. And so we were without a director. And then we, our production company, you know, set us up with some meetings. And we we already knew Ben, but I think he was like the person that came in and we just knew the fit was right. And also we'd watched Down Terrace, which was... You know, again, it's that naturalism, that kind of like going with the, um, you know, improvisational style and very low key. So when there's shocking things happening, it's, you know, and that's the way that me and Steve wanted to make the film as well. So it just felt like very obvious that he was the right person. And I think he was the only director that just went, let's just shoot it, let's just film it. You know, other directors we'd met and who'd sort of been a bit like, I don't get Tina's character, like what... Why is she doing this? Or, well, you'd have to do more work on the. You need like they just sort of solve problems instead of solutions, and that's what is so brilliant about Ben is he's just like, let's go and make it. Let's, let's go and find done. out what the film is by shooting it. Which, you know, as a performer, that's the way I want to work as well. It's like I know, you know, the, the the making of a film is not just these pieces of paper. It's the shooting of it. It's the editing. It's the post production. It's working with composers. It's working with actors. It's you know, it's a a group thing that sort of comes from standing up and doing it, not just you know sitting down looking at a blank screen. That's just one little bit of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's in the moment, isn't it? It's the evolution of those moments as well. Well, I think I think hopefully, it, I mean, it's very difficult to get funding on those bases on that basis. Yes, it's a <laughs> we'll just run it's with an it. it's idea that I've got in my head. It's very difficult <laughs> to. But I think like the more films that you make, 
hopefully the more people develop a trust, trust in your it, yeah. working method and that's you know that's what I'm working on at the moment it's like this does actually work and it produces better results believe it or not than especially with comedy that's what drives me mad it's like you mention improvisation in terms of like making a film and people are scared you know film funders because they're like well what is it we don't know what it's going to be and you know they're terrified but to me like most comedies that I like or value you know there's been an element of improvisation or there's been that relaxedness about we've got someone really funny here why wouldn't we let them be funny (laughs) that's it i think because no matter how good anyone is as a writer these Mm. kind of really talented actors and comedians are always going to come up with better stuff on the basis of what you've already given them right yeah exactly and you know it's it's just weaving in the idea that you don't know what's funny about a situation until you're in that situation so there might be like i don't know a funny light fitting that you might want to make a comment about that the whole audience were thinking about that light fitting and no one's mentioned it and then you mention it and people find it hysterical because like oh my god they mentioned the light fitting and i was thinking about that you know and like it's a bit like when you do observational comedy and you mention someone in the audience, people go nuts for it because yeah. they're like, wow, you're being spontaneous. It's real, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. real. It's yeah. like engaging with, with what is actually going on instead of just going, no, we've got to be slavish to the script. The script does not mention that guy's funny moustache, so we're not going to either. And you're like, why? You know, you're, we're just losing out on gold dust here, on, on jokes. So that just feels a bit criminal to me. Um, but it is about, yeah, the confidence of... of of going let's roll with what's actually happening within the environment that you're shooting in um but then you know you've got to stick to the plot within all of that as well how did you get the funding for prevenge um you'd have to ask my producer it's all privately financed so it's private investors basically which was eye-opening to me because i've always worked with you know film for bfi and What's amazing about those companies is also what is, you know, difficult with them as well because, you know, you don't have companies like that in America necessarily, which are sort of government-funded kind of bodies. But with the red tape that comes with that. Yes, exactly. You're you're waiting basically, and you're in a queue with lots of other people. Did Sightseers take a while to be released or oh, to be years. made? It was years, right? Years. It was like I think it was like seven years between wow. us first being on stage, doing those characters to actually getting it made as a feature so that's probably long slightly longer than the average but it's not that unusual yeah yeah i mean yeah and i just after after that got made i was like i don't i don't i'm actually a different age group than than i was (laughs) we were gonna have to age up to play those characters and we (laughs) didn't have to do it anymore by the time we filmed it and i was just like i don't want to do that again I, i can't afford to spend that much of my life developing a project that which may or may not happen it's like I've got to have like a cut off point where it's two years or I'm off you know so I started developing another project with Film 4 after that and I thought naively that it was going to be really fast and it just wasn't and um, so I was waiting around and meantime got up the duff <laughs> um, and I kind of thought well that's it then you can't do a baby and a film you can't do both but I was sort of meanwhile sort of trying to hide it from film for the fact that I was pregnant I was like oh they don't need another reason to not make this film I better keep it quiet and that has to be a real struggle for a lot of actresses right yeah and TV totally. presenters and anyone who's yeah. sort of on camera yeah I think so and you have to feel really pretty secure in your position to be out and proud about it I mean if you're like Holly Willoughby 
or like Olivia Coleman or someone, then you hope that your job, job is still going to be there for you when you come back or that they're going to shoot around your pregnancy. But re- realistically, most women are not in that situation. Um, and so I certainly wasn't. I was like, well, who's going to employ me after this or during this? Like, nobody. Um, and then I'd done Black Mountain Poets, which was a Welsh film that Jamie Adams, director Jamie Adams, had done. And that was a five-day shoot in Wales. And I'd done that a couple of years before. And he called me up and said, look, do you want to write a film for me? Um, there's financing to shoot it this year. Do you want to do it? And I was a bit like, <laughs> Jamie, no, I'm pregnant, you idiot. <laughs> I was a bit like, <laughs> I have quite a funny friendship with him because he's one of those people that you can be like, what are you talking about? This he's is ridiculous. A pusher, right? Yes, exactly. He, which it's is important actually, to have those friendships, I think. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. He, I mean, he's really good in that sense because you do end up going to that person you're ridiculous what are you talking about of course I can't do that and then you sort of go away and go I'm going to show you yeah Yeah. no totally so he came to me and he sort of went can you do a script can you do this and I was like no of course I can't and then he came back to me and he went have you got anything for Cara Delevingne and that really pushed my buttons because I was like Jamie I'm six months pregnant I have no future work prospects necessarily if I'm going to do a low budget feature it's going to be for me it's not going to be for Cara Delevingne I'm going to act in it I'm going to write it about what I it's going to be a passion project it's not going to be some rom-com like I could sell that to you know working title or something and get some proper money <laughs> it's got to be something that I really care about and he just went okay let's do that then and I was like oh god damn it caught your blood yeah exactly <laughs> and I was like Oh, um, okay, well, what if it was a pregnant character? How would I do that? Well, I could do a pregnant character who... I'd always talked about Taxi Driver, the film Taxi Driver, and said, why isn't there a female taxi driver? And I kind of was like, well, if I merge that with a pregnant character, what would that be? And sort of went, oh, joked that it would be called Prevenge and stuff. And he was like, that sounds great. Um, And he told the production company about it, who I'd not met at this stage. And they were like, they. I love like, this guy already. <laughs> He's hilarious. Uh, I just did. I just did a little cameo in one of his other features that he's done. And, you know, again, like the Black Black Mountain Poets was one of those things where I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. How can you make a feature film in five days? But at the time, I wasn't really getting that much acting work, and I was really like, well, this guy wants to give me a lead role, and that's not to be sniffed at a woman over 30 to be given a lead role in a feature and I was just like right he's just offering me this thing how bad can it be (laughs) (laughs) and actually it turned out really really well so it's like yeah he is one of those people that you go you're mad but then there's a kind of method to his madness and also that thing of just saying yes I really learned a really important lesson of just like not underestimating your own abilities when you're really put to the test you know like I was like I didn't actually know I could do that and I didn't know I could sort of be writing on my feet basically playing this character and this crazy narrative so it gave me a lot of confidence of like yeah I think I could actually write a feature in a short time Did being on that set give you the confidence to know that you could actually shoot and get something done in quite a limited time frame as well? Yeah I mean in that that sense I knew that that was possible already because I, well in the way that Ben works is pretty fast and furious but even before that I was making short films with director Jacqueline Wright and we made 12 short films in a year and we'd made short films before that but we did a sort of challenge to ourselves where we made 12 short films in a year and I would probably write one in an afternoon and we'd shoot it in a day you know it was very very rare that we shot I think we only shot about two of them in two days or something 
Um, so that was always the approach with that is like fast and furious. So I knew that you can get stuff shot quickly. It really depends on your DOP and and um, how you how you want to work and stuff and the way you shoot. So I felt very confident. I also felt confident with myself as a an actor because even though Jacqueline had directed those, I'd written them. So I always felt like people make a massive fuss about directors actor turned directors but to me it feels normal I'm like what's the especially as a writer as well yeah with sightseers obviously that character was so yours and yeah I mean to me I'm like just because I can't see myself I can see myself in my mind's eye I know what the camera's getting I I don't know I can't explain it any better than that I think if you've been acting for a really long time it is like a sixth sense that you have it's like typing or something you don't really know how you're doing it you're just doing it like riding a bike or something yeah yeah well do you know for me I think as well Alice there's an element of and it might be a tenuous link, but maybe there's something there. Because I have a lot of, as I mentioned, punks on this podcast. And yeah. there's something about that ethos of, let's just get it done. Mm. I don't need someone carrying my bags. I don't mm. need, you know, ten roadies. I can just do it. And it is. Do you know what the, gorilla, big, DIY. the biggest flattery that I had was someone wrote uh, an article about the, a new punk aesthetic in film. And right, they great. mentioned Prevenge. And okay, I was like, cool. I want to be a punk. That's what I want. I mean... What could be more punk than being... How, how many months <laughs> pregnant were you? So by the time when it started. Uh, we started seven and a half months, wow. and by the time we finished set, uh, eight and a bit. So um, ready to pop. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I sort of said I don't want to film too much in my eighth month yeah. because I might give birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that would, would not be that great for getting the film finished. But yeah, it, to me it is like that thing of, of like broad strokes as well. Like how do you get to actually show people what your intentions are, especially when, as we were talking about, like you might take seven years to get your film made and... There's a lot of nitpicking that goes on with that because they're going, we're going to give you a lot of money and we need to make sure it's absolutely worth it, you know. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, you're like, it's like you meet a lot of screenwriters who, or, or wannabe screenwriters who are like sitting on screenplays and you're sort of like, well, no one's really going to, it's a catch-22 situation, no one's going to trust you to make a film until you've made a film. So you just have to go and do it. But it's really easy to forget that advice, even for yourself, because I was like, once I made, once I d- done sightseers even though I hadn't directed it I really naively was like oh they're gonna let me do whatever I want now you know they need some more female directors they should just give me some money <laughs> yeah, really arrogant it was like come on give me some stuff on a platter yeah uh, but weirdly like people were saying stuff like that to me as well which makes you believe it even more like people are like surely they're throwing money at you aren't they and me going no uh, <laughs> I wish they were um but you know I really had to get out and do it for that to, you know, for it to snowball into me, like, then get people going, oh, right, we take you quite seriously now. As a director, it's all right. <laughs> um, which is a nice situation to be in. But, yeah, I mean, you have to just always... You have to have people chasing you. This is the thing that I think with any... Probably any creative medium now is, like, you can't wait around for permission. You have to make them chase you, basically, going, please work with us, please work with us, because you're so far ahead of the pack doing stuff. And I'm not, I'm not a sort of real attention to detail person. I can't. I mean, I love Kubrick, but I can never see myself being that person. Who that meticulous would have, scientific approach. Yeah, I just can't be bothered with that. It's like, I'm too impatient. Well, I think there's I'm two like, types of filmmakers, isn't there? There's the artists who feel it mm. and kind of vibe it, and then there's the more kind of master craftsmen, like the mm. Hitchcocks, the Kubricks, and you know, yeah. they have to get every tiny finite detail so and they have it already rigid. in their head but probably i mean yeah. I, I i would say that, that i i do have stuff in my head 
you know, we, we had some very lucky coincidences with Prevenge. Like, I was like, I really want an underpass that's got bright colours. And there was that. There was that in Cardiff. And I was like, my God. I, I mean... Is that like, when you're sick in the... Yeah, in the t- yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, afterwards I did think, well, maybe... Because I'd, you know, got friends who'd been students in Cardiff. And I thought, well, my maybe sister I'd went to Cardiff through Uni, yeah. some of those underpasses and remembered them, you know. Like, you always remember your night out in Cardiff because people drink a lot and... <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I went down for my sister's graduation day and she was obviously there in her robe and it was like three in the afternoon and we're having a family dinner and already those people are like, wee. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like a weekday. Well, we shot that scene on Halloween. On Halloween Cardiff. night in Cardiff. Amazing. And I was worried for a bit that it wasn't, we weren't going to get enough. I was a bit like, maybe people won't really go to town and oh my God. I There's mean, one guy that grabbed the camera. Oh my God. Was that I mean, directed or was he, that just like, come in? No, no, no. They were <laughs> just, just people it. were manhandling the, the camera. <laughs> But like this, that was shot about half eight. Wow! You'd think it was like three in the morning. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. it wasn't. I was like, oh, people won't be that drunk. But they were. They've been drinking all day. I think it was a Saturday. Cardiff came through for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which was brilliant. I mean, it was exactly what, in my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined that. But there was lots of really lucky coincidences like that. And I think that's the thing about working in that way is you kind of go, okay, it's not the Hitchcock Kubrick way, but in a way, it means that you are flexible enough to catch the stuff that you really wanted to, do, to get you know it's like you don't miss out on stuff because you're so rigidly like we've paid a million pounds to have this victorian shop front recreated so we can't get that rainbow over there or something you know and i met nicholas roeg who i'm really big fan Fantastic. fan of and I he said, did a talk when i was at university he's a very tiny yeah, little man isn't yes. he real old school gentleman yeah and i think was it the nfts no. It was Exeter University. It was oh, going right, back okay. about ten years. I think he just came. I think he knew one of the chancellors or something, and yeah, just came in and did like a two-hour talk. In that way, like he really does a lot of teaching and a lot of like film school stuff. And I met him and I was like, "What advice would you give to me, Nick? What would you tell me about filmmaking?" And he said, "I'll try and get it right. I'm probably not getting it very right." But he said, "If you if you're planning to film in the attic, but the exciting stuff is all down in the cellar, then film in the bloody cellar." And I was like, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, go with the go with the gift that you're being given. It's like, if you wanted to do a really sunny scene, but it's raining suddenly, that could work better for your scene than you, than you realise. It's just like having the flexibility and the kind of uh, suppleness or something to be able to go, right, we're going to jump to that. And like, so in that way, it's like, there's, it's impossible to get something wrong. It's like every choice that you make is right because you're like taking it as a positive instead of like, oh God, you know, the amount of TV filming that I've done where there's been like, ah, torture because it's the wrong sort of weather and like... And it's a lot of waiting around, right? Yeah, Yeah. and you're sort of like, why don't we just use this and get this? And I mean, a lot of the writing of Prevenge, I was like, this scene's going to be on Halloween. And I remember um, Gareth Tunley, who's a director, friend of mine, who... Um, gave me some notes on the script I remember him saying oh is it a bit of a cliche to have a Halloween scene in a horror and I was like it totally is but the thing that is going to make elevate it from that is the fact it's going to be really Halloween and we're not going to predict what those costumes are that people are going to be wearing it's going to be weirder than you could possibly imagine and there is going to be an edge of danger and people are going to feel that it's not going to feel like your standard that sequence is almost like a dream sequence mm, the way yeah. it's shot obviously the music really heightens that and it's mm. all the camera angles are so claustrophobic aren't they and yeah. right up in you 
Yeah, totally. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be almost like a sci-fi. That yeah. Bit, that, um, the whole film has an undertone of that. I guess mm. I'd never really thought about pregnancy in that kind of way before, but... I think I wanted it to be a sense of, like, she's this vehicle and, and you're kind of witnessing through her eyes as she's travelling on this journey. And I, I think there's something a bit... In my mind, I was thinking it's a bit Orpheus and Eurydice as well. It's like someone who's... They're journeying into hell, basically, <laughs> to, to kind of retrieve whatever dignity they have or, you know, the memories they have of this person that's died and then meeting all these creatures. So it is the underworld. Like, she, she is in hell when she's kind of walking through. I'm going to move my chair because I'm, like... OK, you're burning I'm getting up. sunburned. I'm just such a pallid person. <laughs> I have to be on top of this sort of thing. My friend just went uh, fossil hunting on the Cornish <laughs> oh, really? coast and he came back and his whole face was brown apart from where his sunglasses were and it was just bright white. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you just tease Classic. him about it? Yeah, well, he's a real Scottish, fair-haired, fair-skinned oh, kind yeah, of guy. That's so dangerous. Yeah, he got ruined. I used to love fossils, and I had um, a collection of them under my bed, which I used to say was a museum. And I used to charge my mum and dad a, like a penny for them to for look entry. at it. Yeah, <laughs> and I had like these tickets that I'd made that were coming out of a baby wipes tub, <laughs> so you could like have a ticket Tear and then you, you just like look with a torch for these <laughs> fossils under the bed. You know, like had like amethysts and stuff like that, like you know gems that I'd collected. Amazing. Over the years. You still got the collection? She still yeah, got I think it. Probably. My mum still got it in a box somewhere. Like I do still like stuff like that, but it's just like you know. You live in London, your flat is so tiny. Yeah, there's no room for like, trinkets and no, memorabilia, is there? Do you no. collect it? Do you keep anything from any of the sets you've been on? I do. I do. Sometimes I try to keep hold of it consciously because I'm like, this might be my pension. Yeah. Or like, you know, you might want to donate it to a charitable kind of thing. Like someone asked me for some stuff for Grenfell Tower, basically. So stuff, yeah, I do really, but I'm not, I'm not sentimental about it really. I just, I kind of keep hold of it because I sort of aware that there's a kind of that it does have a value these yeah. days um but yeah it does like take up an awful lot of room it's like you know i did make myself throw away a lot of stuff especially from like stage shows because there is a point where you go am i realistically gonna dress as a giant russian doll anymore in the future <laughs> i'm too old will it ever be called for that costume ever again yeah especially when you have go. a baby and you're like i really need some room for like a cot and some other essentials <laughs> and instead i've got a giant russian doll costume so there was a point where i did ditch a lot of stuff but you, i got a real fear because i think if you're a teacher or an actor or a comedian you build up like this sort of crap that you think that you're going to need. And it's stuff like, oh, yeah, that really long bit of material that um, I used as a to create ocean, the idea of ocean on stage. I might need that again, you know, or this wig that I used to dress up as a whatever. You know, you do have this, like, panic, I might need this again, I may need it, I'm, I don't want to have to buy it again, you know, and you have a bit of a freak out about it. And then you realise... Just it it's ruining your life. <laughs> this stuff's ruining my life. Hey, talking about props, did somebody give you some testicle props for the, <laughs> for the DJ Dan scene? Well, did I a, hear that right? It's a complicated, yes. <laughs> it's it a complicated is, situation. It's a bit more complicated than that. It's not that complicated. Um, it's more that um, I work quite often with a special effects expert called Dan Martin who has a workshop. And he often has like body parts lying around. He works with Ben Wheatley. He's worked on things like um, the Human Centipede, and he just has body parts that. I bet he's you know, got an interesting house. Yeah, well, I think his studio is right. pretty fascinating. Um, 
And so, you know, I met up with him and said, look, I've got a variety of murders that I need to do and they need to be all done with a knife, convincingly with one blow. Um, but they need to be varied enough to be not get boring. It's not just that every yeah, time. Yes, exactly. So we just sort of went through some options and uh, he was like, well, I've got some testicles. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll have I those. I can use them. And interestingly, they were also used, I think they were fried up in a frying pan in Steve Oram's film R. So they've had quite That's a few the starring R, roles. Like there's loads of A's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, I mean, stuff like that is like, <laughs> yeah, again, it's how you make, more interesting choices within a film is because you know you're letting other people's creativity or, or what what's available almost like these lateral decisions inform the creativity in a different kind of way and it's yeah more interesting because it. it must be amazing to have so many friends within the industry by now that you can call on for advice for help for props yeah, I think that it's a really massive asset, actually, because it's all very well when you're talking to, you know, I do a few talks at film schools and stuff like that, and it's all very well when you're saying to people, just ask your friends to turn up and help you, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've made these friends after, you know, 15, 20 years of working in the business, you know. So that isn't something that happens overnight. But, um, but yeah, definitely, and you come to a point of, like, experience where you're like okay i'm drawing on other people's gathered experience as well and um yeah yeah i mean it's one of the really brilliant things about it having like gareth tunley being able to read the script that i'd written was really good because i've worked with various different like script editors in different ways and it's very difficult especially when you're working producers and commissioners what they want your product end product to be is not necessarily what you want your end product to be so the notes that you're giving might not be that there's anything wrong with what you've done, but it's just not fulfilling their vision of what they want the product to be. And what was interesting about Gareth was like, I know that we've got similar tastes. So I know when he's saying to me something doesn't work, it's because it doesn't work within what I'm trying to achieve. And when it does work, I know that it is working within. And you know, like, someone like Gareth who, just like me, he acts, he writes, he wears lots of different hats, he'll go, yep yep tick tick t you know a lot of it is just says yes to because he's like i can see how this works in a way that maybe someone without the full picture yeah couldn't understand see. they don't wouldn't get it so like that was really invaluable invaluable sort of that kind of feedback and that's i imagine how you got such an amazing cast as well right it's because you've got all these people in your community that like also, you and respect you and yeah, want to work with you the, the trust thing yeah. is a massive thing because you kind of go you want people to kind of come in and go, I'm, I'm guessing that this isn't going to be a pile of crap. I'm hoping that it's not. And they're giving you their, <laughs> they're giving you their trust and you're, you know, that's what you're sort of exploiting, really. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I think so much of that. And also the fact that we're all on the same page, you know. It's like you could get in a fancy actor who really doesn't get it, who's, like, thinking, this script is crap or I don't get it or whatever and then they're going to give you a sort of really weird performance because underneath it all they're, they're going I hate this and I hate you like um, whereas someone else could be thinking that but they're, they're going no do you know what it's going to work because it's Alice and we are friends and this is fun and the other day you just don't want people to take it too seriously in a way it's like you bring your commitment and you bring your time and you bring your trust but you're sort of like it's just blooming acting it's like let's just have fun with it and like you know get you know it's really nice to be 
paid to turn up and pretend. Do what you love um, and it's not yeah. work, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if it is, if you do love it, then yeah. It's, it's just, I mean, I always, I would love to do more acting. I don't actually get off with that much, which a lot of people are quite surprised about. They sort of go, what, well, I have to sightsee is don't get loads of stuff. And I'm like, no, people think of me as too much of a weirdo. They don't, certainly don't get that much serious acting work. And I'm like, I love acting because it's like being a kid. You just, you're playing. You're like pretending to be something that you're not. And, and it's escapism and it's brilliant. It's fun, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For me as a viewer, and I'm not just saying this to be complimentary in your presence, particularly in Prevenge, that performance is so multi-layered and I know it's, you know, designed to be a sort of very black comedy film mm. and there's elements of horror and sci-fi, but I actually found it really moving and oh, that's good. entirely down to the the pathos in your performance. You really feel for this person and what that's she's good. been through and, you know, it's it's an affecting performance that oh, thanks. elevates it to just, I think, above a, a level of a certain genre film. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, that sort of fulfills my theory which I always had which was my taxi driver theory that as an as an actress I always felt like you know you quite often say people say to you is this character likeable enough and they'll say that about the, the character's actions they'll sort of go oh she's done this the audience aren't going to like her after she's done that and I'd always be going it's not about why? what they do yeah right why if you can watch Jack Nicholson like trying to kill someone and still like him then why why wouldn't you be able to like an actress doing that and really um the performer is who you like, you know. It, it's do you see into their soul, into their eyes, you know, when you watch them. You could like anyone on screen. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. It's just you're being exposed to feeling like you are them and you're empathising with them. So that was my theory and I was really like, I really want to push this to the extreme with this film and like really have her doing really bad things and you're really not knowing why she's even doing it. But my theory is that you could still care for that character and still be bothered about how they're feeling and... Yeah, I was just trying to sort of prove a point in a way with, with that. Point so, proved. 
Yeah, well, well I don't know. Some people scene, say I didn't, I didn't empathise with there's her. There's the scene in the care. bedroom <laughs> where, um, what's the face Jack of Phone Jack actor uh, called? Kayvon, yeah. He, he's saying to you, you know, I spoke to your partner just before he died and I know that things weren't great between you and I know that he was thinking of leaving you. Mm. And Ruth kind of like just, you know, you can see the emotional agony that she's mm. in at that and mm. that moment there I was like wow I really feel for this person even mm. though she's you know been slicing people's throats and balls and mm. doing all that and mm. what I love is when you smash the lady's head on the desk as well and you slice her throat you kiss her and then you're like <laughs> spinning around and it's just so dark so twisted mm. but as I said still at the end I was like oh man I still really feel for this person mm. oh that's good I mean that I, I sort of remember like with Sightseers there was a bit of an element of that of like is this character likeable enough and I really just felt like don't worry about it I'm, I'm not going to not let people not like this person that they're going to and I, that's kind of my theory with casting as well if you cast really likeable actors uh, in horrible parts then you'll go anywhere with them basically they can do anything and like DJ Dan. Well, DJ Dan, you love to hate him, don't but... you? But, I mean, you're really enjoying him. <laughs> yeah. it, it wouldn't work if he was a colder performer. You know, yeah. he's a really warm kind of presence, even though he's doing all these awful things. And you know as well that he's such a great actor that he loves that He loves that character. Nobody hates them. You know, nobody sort of goes into this life going, I'm not the main character. You know, people sort of like themselves. Even if they're Hitler, they like themselves. So you can't play Hitler going, I'm really evil, I know I'm evil. You have to play Hitler going, I'm great, I'm, I'm you know, the second coming, I, I, I'm a brilliant person. So as an actor, you have to like your characters. And um, I always love the characters that I'm playing. They're like my children or something, you know. <laughs> if I do, it, that's when I really struggle to actually take on an acting job is if I don't like the character. Because I, well, I'll be quite honest about that sometimes. Just like, I just don't really like, I don't, it doesn't really matter whether this person's doing the right thing or wrong, wrong thing, it just matters that I can't get with it. And that's going to mean my performance isn't great. It might be that you could work through it to find a way of... But it's not going to be honest, it's not going to be pure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's like you've got to find your way in, in some way. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of that sort of stuff is like, especially when I'm writing, I, and this is quite often why I have cast myself in, in a something, is that I sort of I feel like I have an inherent understanding of what the character is, and to actually explain that to someone, if I'd cast someone else in Revenge, I don't know verbally I would have been able to explain how I felt, sense that character was, even though I had a complete intuitive understanding of who she was. And to try, that scares me more. Like when someone's going like, oh, how do you act and direct at the same time? Isn't that scary? And I'm like, it would be more scary to try and put this character in the hands of someone else that I wasn't sure I could convincingly explain what I wanted. So, and it is complex. There is lots of different, as you say, like there is lots of different layers and motives. You know, to her, she's a completely consistent person, but to someone else, they might think she's completely inconsistent. But those are the characters that I like is, inconsistent people people are inconsistent and I mean often like you get like especially like script screenwriting books or script editors going what does this person want what do they want you're like well what does anyone want people don't know what they want and people change their minds all the time you know it's like people might flip at certain moments and uh yeah and I just sort of felt like she knows what she's doing this woman but you know, how she feels is changing all the time, you know. 
and there's some twists and turns that I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it, but <laughs> the, the film definitely keeps you guessing yeah. throughout as well, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we wanted to do that. I mean, I, I guess it's in a way a detective story. I did have a few people say to me, you can't, you know, there's like one director in particular who said, in a revenge movie, you have to know why they're doing what they're doing within the first five minutes. And I was like, well, I'm going to refute that theory because I don't really... To me, I, that's the plot, is you're finding out why should I be okay with what this woman's doing. Like, and I just really wanted to have this mystery to it that uh, you just don't know what, why she's doing it. And um, There's nothing more exhilarating or thrilling or scary than not knowing why as well and it not really making sense. Well, in a way, I'm telling the story from the baddie's perspective. So if she was Jason in Friday the 13th or something, I'm making you empathise with Jason or something. So it is someone just mechanically going through these actions. But actually, there's always a reason to it. But that's what I'm... You know, and I kind of looked at things like Red Road and Dead Man's Shoes, and I was like, well, you don't Dead know. Dead Man's Shoes is so good. It's a brilliant film. And, uh, you know, I was just like, well, you don't know what, why they're doing what they're doing. Especially when you're shooting something very quickly and you're... Shoot, which both of those films were shot very quickly and on a very low budget, you sort of go, what have you got at your disposal that doesn't cost anything? And one of them is suspense. It is like suspense. So to that extent, like, Prevenge is a, a suspense thriller in some ways. Um, but, yeah, that was another thing that I think if I'd been developing it in a conventional way, they would have been going, what is it as a film? What is it? What genre is it? And I'd be like, I don't know. It feels like an auteur <laughs> film to me. It feels like one of those 70s films that's just kind of a unique piece of work. Well, that's what I wanted. I mean, I don't know how conscious I was about that, really. I just write what I feel like I want to write. I suppose that is what being an auteur is. But I think really until the edit, I didn't the pen didn't really drop for me that it isn't a universal story it's a peculiar story <laughs> and it is just told from this one person's perspective so you're just with them and and hopefully you're with them enough time that what they're doing feels okay that that's this is what they're doing but really it's all done from there it's idiosyncratic it's all done from their perspective they're not making the decisions that you or I would make so it's not like making this universal tale which often horror is it's like usually it's like a fairy tale where the main protagonist is is us and they're in a predicament and they make all the right or the wrong decisions depending on human frailty or human bravery or whatever and we identify with that and Ruth isn't that she isn't a normal person <laughs> so but to me I'm like I don't want to play a normal person I think that's actually why a lot of horror you know performers, actors disappear and stuff because you just don't, they're just every man or every woman, they're not um, particular... Memorable. Me they're not particularly memorable and that's why you remember Jack Nicholson in The Shining he's like the protagonist and he's a complete weirdo And as you say, charming <laughs> and hilarious somehow despite the dastardly stuff he's doing, yeah, you're like this guy's he's great fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, I just called him the protagonist when he's the antagonist but you know, <laughs> that's how you remember yeah. it and you enjoy it as well. So I'm sort of really interested in all of that kind of thing. I think The Babadook was a very clever great flipping film. Of, of those things. Like I read this great article where it said, uh, you know, the main character is the protagonist and the antagonist. And I was like, genius, that's absolutely true. And what if, you know, and that definitely I fed that into Prevention. I was like, I want her to be the protagonist and she's her own worst enemy as well as being a victim, you know, and, and how do both those things survive within a narrative framework and um, yeah and just like can we deal with that complex 
complex an idea and like to me I think it's like quite a modern thing like people going characters aren't black and white anymore I don't think you know that there uh, there can be anything that can shift through all different sorts of changes and you just go with it hopefully and it's refreshing it's more interesting to an audience you know I still haven't seen something like get out but I think so have you not I can't so wait. I don't good. see anything. I don't yeah, see anything I guess. these You've days. Got a full time job with. Yeah, is well, it Della, your daughter? Yeah, yeah Della. Yeah. I'm either working and like maybe hosting a screening or something, and then when I'm not working, I'm sort of like, well, the last thing I'm going to go see is a film. It's like, you know, it feels like work, so I'm more likely to kind of just be hanging out with the baby or something. Or uh, what do I actually do socially? Nothing these days. <laughs> Sorry to any like people thinking about that you can have a social life. You could, but it's just I think like, once you feel a certain guilty. age you pass, you then can right dip yeah. your toe in again. Yeah, when they're a bit older. I mean, I do, I do, but quite often it's like a work thing. That's the only way I sort of can justify it to myself. It's like work drinks, or like you know, I sort of go, well, you know, maybe should show my face, I suppose. Ooh. And then I'm like thinking, when can I go home? I shouldn't drink another one of these because I'll be hungover and that'll be a nightmare. Like <laughs> that's usually my life. <laughs> So, but yeah, so I don't get to see anything, which is really annoying. It's a great, great film. Yeah. One I, of this I can't year's wait. best. I'm hoping it'll be out on Netflix or something like that. And then I get to see, that's how I get to see things these days. Um, I could Fox talk to you all day, Alice. I feel like I should let you get back to your daughter in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Can I'm we end on a, I want to just ask you about working with, with Timothy Dalton in Hot Fuzz. Oh yeah, please do. Bond. What, yeah. what were those scenes like to shoot? Was he a good guy? He's amazing. Timothy Dalton he's kind of like everything you expect him to be and more he's got this I mean I think he was about 64 saying that ballpark figure but when he did that and he was absolutely gorgeous like specimen of you of mankind I was like <laughs> sort of quivering just the side it's Bond of isn't it it's Bond but it's quite interesting because like Jim Broadbent who obviously I'm a massive fan of is the same age as him really yeah wow but Timothy Dalton was like I don't know what the female equivalent of a cougar is like a panther he was like a panther <laughs> a and, jaguar yeah a jaguar <laughs> and he has got this kind of actory kind of voice and um, I remember this was quite amazing because he uh, you know Edgar's like his attention to detail is quite amazing and they only had Timothy for like a day or something like that and um, he had to go back to LA where he lived and um, they sort of got all of Timothy's stuff and then they sort of said we'll get you know on the sly I think they said the first day they said well we'll get Simon's stuff tomorrow and Timothy found out and was like you will not I will not have Simon, poor Simon, acting without me being there. I insist we must get this done, we must get this done while I'm here. And um, Like he's old school, you know, but he was like a gent. He was like, you know, I have to have, Simon has to have me to do the right performance and all that stuff. A real but, generous actor. Yeah, yeah. And there was, but there was also this bit where he said, um, I thought, Edgar, that I would be leaning against the filing cabinet for this bit. <laughs> Like Edgar's meanwhile trying to get like trying to get all of his scenes done with him just sitting at his desk. So you don't have to do any camera moves or relighting or anything. And like Timothy's like, but I thought I would do this scene leaning against the filing cabinet, like so. And Edgar was like, um, it's a great idea. And like, <laughs> Edgar's really nice. I don't can't even remember what happened with it, whether he got his way. But you know, uh like when someone's probably used to working on a much bigger budget like film I mean this is the thing like Hot Fuzz doesn't feel particularly low budget but it's lower budget than the budget that 
Edgar has these days, you know, like something like Baby Driver or whatever. What a creative guy he must be because I watched that film like two days ago again and yeah. uh, it for me feels like a Hollywood film obviously the subject and the characters mm. are so British but the style of it is so American and Hollywood it doesn't feel like a low this budget is film yeah. yeah well he just knows what he just knows he's how doing to shoot action he's, well yeah and he's just I guess grown up with it just dissecting it and like he is that person that um, every camera move doesn't wouldn't pass him by of any film that he's watching he'd be you know thinking about it it's like do you, you know, watch films like that i do more now i mean i only really notice it when it's bad right <laughs> i have to i mean sometimes i do see a shot i'm like oh i like what they did there um but these days it's like if if there's if they're filming something like what was it that we watched the other day and i went mad because i just couldn't understand gold i watched gold with um matthew mcconaughey and I was just saying to my partner, who also makes films, I was just going, why are they moving the camera now? Why is, what, what's narrative purpose is this? Why, why are they zooming in? Why are they doing that? And he was just like, all right, calm down, shut up. And I was like, it's just driving me mad because it's not telling the story. It's like, you know, when I'm working, even with like um, Ryan Edelston, who's my DOP, I'm like, if we're going to do a fancy move, why are we doing it? We need to know why, like at one stage, you know, these days people are like, should we get a drone? Because you can get drones really cheaply and it makes makes it look expensive. And I was like, yeah, but, you what know, homes under the hammer are using drones because they're not expensive. Why? Is there a fairy in the sky that is zooming down? Like, you know, I can understand it if there's a supernatural character or there's like, or you're trying to give some sense of an overview, like God looking down or something, but to just do it like oh on the off chance we might need a drone i'm like no no because it doesn't so i'm quite i'm quite like that now it's sort of like i think this is the mistake a lot of filmmakers actually make when they're starting out it's like they put in the fancy shot before they're thinking about whether it tells a story and like i'm always like i'm mentoring someone at the moment i'm always like whose perspective is this why who's seeing that who's seeing this and who are we trying to make the audience empathise with because that's the viewpoint that you're giving. If you're trying to break out of that, you've got to give a reason why. So, yeah, I, I do notice it more <laughs> now. Probably ruins my viewing experience of certain things. I don't know, like, then I'll see something I really enjoy and I'm not thinking about it at all, you know. That's when it's really good, I suppose. What's your favourite film ever made? Um, oh, it's funny because Empire Magazine asked me this recently and it was so hard to choose. I had to choose Black Narcissus in the end, but... In a way, I was kind of choosing Paul and Pressburger as my favourite filmmakers. Their whole oeuvre. Yeah, exactly. Life and Death of Colonel Blimp is them, right? Yeah, I've and just And A Matter really of Life and Death. That. Yeah. Two really fantastic films. Amazing. It puts me in such a good mood when, when you watch a good film like that again. Like, you just go, ah. All is right with the world. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What's so, next for you, Alice? So I'm writing another screenplay now for the same company who did Fringe and is as yet untitled. But... Uh, I'm also developing a TV idea. I'm also due to shoot a couple of features as an actor, which I can't talk about yet, but this summer. So I'm really busy, but it's all really fun stuff. It's all really, really good stuff. Great. And the DVD is out of Prevenge, and you can also watch it on various platforms. <laughs> and Sightseers, <laughs> like if you've never seen those two films, both just incredible. <laughs> Black, oh, hilarious. Ghoul, I should say The Ghoul is out as well on August the 4th in cinemas, which is uh, directed by Gareth Tunley, and I'm in it with... Um, Tom Meaton 
and it's a brilliant like if you enjoy Prevenge like something that's a little bit out there and a bit more twisty turny it's not a comedy it's like a psychological thriller but it's brilliant and I haven't seen anything like it uh, as part of British cinema ever I don't think it's like it's a really really interesting film I think the British film industry at the moment from directors like Edgar and yourself and you know Simon Pegg and obviously actors like you know Tom Hiddleston and mm. Benedict Cumberbatch Tom Hardy mm. it's in a great place at the moment right I feel like that is the case like when I go out to LA which is not very often but um, you know they're very down on film and I'm sort of like to me it's like and Ben well, Wheatley I, who I forgot to mention yeah yeah Amazing. I mean to me it's like I make it I work I do it because I like it I don't do it to make loads of money I know that's the you have to make some money to sustain the film industry but I feel like there's an optimism in Britain because it's a sense of like oh we can do what we like you can make films and you can do what you like with it it's like we're not trying to make loads of money we're not working off the Hollywood model we're trying to be creative and I think that's leading to a new kind of explosion um, it's the it's the opposite it's like in America TV everything's happening with TV and it's quite exciting and I, we're playing catch up with that here I think where we're sort of like, oh look, these really daring out there shows that America are doing and we're still struggling with EastEnders. <laughs> yeah, but also we're just like, oh we don't make a comedy about murderers and you're sort of like, well Netflix wouldn't turn the nose up at that they'd be like, people are going to watch that whereas the BBC would be like, oh how many complaints are we going to get? Well Dexter although it's not specifically a well, comedy it's just like a seven made. series show You know, Dexter was being made when we were doing Sightseers, like a couple of years after we pitched it as a TV idea, and we were like, well, hang on. You know, it's maybe not specifically a comedy, but there's definitely funny bits in it. And um, yeah, so I, I just feel like here, TV's sort of slightly less creative. Some exciting things are happening in drama, um, but great things are happening in film because a lot of TV people are getting frustrated with TV and moving into making film, which is good for the film industry, I think. And bodes well for film fans. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so. Thank you very much for a wonderful chat. Oh, yeah, thank I you. I really enjoyed it and yeah, I really uh, appreciate your time. So thank you. Yeah, for likewise. Hanging out here on the balcony <laughs> with me. And what a beautiful day. If this was yesterday and it was out here, yeah, it would have been, been a very been different podcast. <laughs> thank you, Alice. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.